Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the first in a series of special B2B social media podcasts uh, that I'll be releasing over this feed over the next few weeks, possibly even a few months. Um, I'm going to tweak the format of this podcast. It's going to be a little different than what you're used to. Um, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to focus exclusively on B2B social media. And uh, today is uh, Monday, January 17th. And uh, this is Eric Schwartzman in Los Angeles and... Paul Gellin in Boston. Some of you may know, uh, Paul and I collaborated on a book called Social Marketing to the Business Customer. It's the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social marketing. And um, we're going to, over the next few podcasts, discuss news developments and best practices uh, for social marketing to business customers. Um, it's a frequently asked question, uh, often at, at events and at, at training seminars, um, someone will raise their hand and say, well, I get the idea of social media for B2C companies, but how do I focus in on a business customer using social media? And uh, it was such a frequently asked question. That's why we actually wrote this book. Uh, so in any event, uh, we have a format for you. We're going to give it a shot. And we really want your comments and your criticism and your feedback. Let us know what you think. Does it work? Should we tweak the format? How can we make this a better show? And we've set up a, an email address that you can send attachments of five megabytes or less to, and it is comments at b2bsocialmediapodcast.com. Um, okay, so we're going to kick this off uh, with a discussion of some news items, um, and then we're going to go into a best practices discussion that's going to be focused pretty much on LinkedIn. Um, so to kick it off, uh, I'm going to give you our first story here. Uh, it's about an article that um, I saw uh, online through one of my feeds. I actually use Google Reader, and I clip against keyword B2B. And this came up in my news feed. And I'm going to read you a little clip here. This is from, again, eMarketer, and the headline is B2B Possibilities for Mobile, Business-Oriented Apps and M-Commerce on the Rise. Senior-level executives have been reliant on mobile for years, giving them a lifeline to work while they're on the go or at home. But as smartphones, smartphones become more entrenched uh, in all aspects of life for consumers and business people alike, younger, more tech-savvy executives um, are moving up the ranks, and they're using mobile devices for B2B. Among C-suite executives surveyed in October 2010 by Forbes Insight, 82% had a smartphone, which is far above the penetration of the population as a whole, which eMarketer estimates is 19.4%. Um, and for the majority of executives, their mobile device uh, is considered their primary business communications tool. That's big. Um, only respondents over 50 tended to disagree with that statement. The oldest respondents were also the least comfortable with making business purchases via mobile, uh, though even 48% of over 50s said they were comfortable. Um, overall, nearly two-thirds of respondents would buy items for work over, a mo over the mobile web, um, a portion that reached 
78% among executives under uh, 40. Um, and then one more stat here, kind of interesting. Uh, let me just get to it. And the executives are paying attention to ads on their mobile devices as well. A majority, 57%, said they noticed mobile advertising and nearly as many had clicked on mobile web ads and paid search ads, 51%. Uh, and here's the quote. As optimistic as this may sound to marketers, senior executives, senior executives also, as optimistic, and here's the quote, as optimistic as this may sound to marketers, senior executives also present a warning to would-be advertisers. 53% of executives evenly distributed across all groups indicate that they find mobile ads more intrusive than typical web ads. Um, as such, mobile marketers need to be careful to ensure that they do not cross the line between welcome or at least acceptable advisory uh, versus unwanted interruption. Um, I, I think, um, you know, that's kind of a no-brainer. Paul, I don't know about you, but uh, there was this great app that Procter & Gamble released called Sitter Squat, uh, which was a mobile device that lets you find the closest toilet based on your GPS. Great idea, particularly for a parent on the go. Uh, but each time you wanted to find a toilet, it prompted you for personal information. Obnoxious, so it didn't go. Yeah, I, I, that, I, I'm familiar with that one. Uh, but you know, you have to give PNG some credit for for uh, at least trying to push the the boundaries a little bit. I was stunned by this number: eighty two percent of C suite executives have smartphones, and it could be that many of those uh, people have smartphones because they're the person at the top and they don't really know how to use them. But nevertheless, uh, you've got a population of very uh, influential and a very rich group here that is uh, is be is accustomed to receiving data on their phone, and uh, you know I think for B two B companies they need to look seriously at at the mobile platform, not in, in the same way that a B two C company would, not for the you know find a toilet type of app, but for uh, business information, for RSS feeds about certain industry categories, for customer support information. Uh, this could be uh, for apps that tie into services that maybe maybe are providing over the web. Uh, this could be very powerful. Salesforce.com. You would seem to be a natural company, B two B company that would be well attuned to providing a mobile app that would uh, allow people to access their contact files from uh, from the road. And I think there are lots of other ideas like that. I don't know, Paul. I'd like to meet these eighteen percent that don't have smartphones. I mean, maybe I'm living in the bubble here. But I can't imagine there'd be anybody that's a, you know in the C-suite right now making important decisions that doesn't have a device like that. Well, remember, there's a certain embedded uh, percentage of C-suite executives who, who don't even turn on their computers, right, who still have their, their assistants print out their emails. So uh, I think there's always going to be a, a certain small percentage of people who are not uh, just uh, technically, they're just technophobes, and that's how it's going to be. But... I thought this number was stunning, how large it was. I would have thought you know, maybe 30 40% of C-suite executives, 82% just blew my mind. It also says most U.S. executives were also using mobile phones for business purposes. Uh, there was a dramatic drop in app usage among the oldest respondents, but a majority of all those under 50 said they used both free and paid B2B apps, at least on occasion. Here's what I'm wondering. What are they considering a B2B app? Uh, I would think a B2B app would be something that gives you targeted information about your industry. 
or that is related to perhaps uh, financial information, competitive intelligence, um, anything that relates to your to, to the the state of your market. Um, the, probably a lot of these apps are are of the stock quote type of variety, but I think you can build on that. You know, again, using a Salesforce example, or if you are a, a let's say you're an email marketing company and you want to give your uh, your executives a, a chance to look at the performance of their email campaigns at any given time. Get a snapshot of those campaigns. Well, that seems like a very natural thing for an email marketing company to provide to a B2B audience. At the time when we were researching the book, I know we talked to the guys at Salesforce about apps, and I know that was on their radar. Do they have apps? Are they, are they available now? Uh, last time I looked at their, at their website, I did not see one, but uh, things change very quickly. So it, it could be that uh, – I mean, I'm sure if anyone is going to do it soon, Salesforce.com will, will do it. Uh, I, I think where it, it becomes more of a question uh, – more of a questionable business proposition is when you get into uh, heavy industry. You know, if you're a ConAgra or a company that, uh, that deals with commodities on a large scale, it may be more difficult to find a, a, a place for uh, – uh, for a mobile phone app, but certainly if you're a business that deals in information, uh, you would want to to provide snapshots of that, I think, to your best customers. Uh, good. Well, uh, do you want to uh, kick off the next story? Yeah, I, I was uh, also another survey that came out uh, just, just this week, in fact. Nine out of ten companies don't think they use social media effectively, and we'll post the uh, the link to this story. It was done by the Harvard Business Review Analytics Service uh, on the on behalf of SAS. And uh, some of the highlights, 75% of companies surveyed said they didn't know where their customers were talking about them online. 31% said they don't measure the effectiveness of social media. 23% said they're using social media analytics tools. Now, se- the number that really stood out to me is 75% didn't know where their companies were talking about them online. Um, other highlights, um, there was an earlier survey by Kingfish Media that's uh, cited here, 457 market executives, uh, 72% said their company had a social media strategy of some kind, but only 30% said that they had executed a social media uh, ad campaign, only 15% attempted to measure the ROI. And I think what we're seeing here is really the maturation of social media in the executive suite where there's a broad awareness that businesses need to be tuned in to customer conversations. Uh, they, need to, they need to have some metrics for evaluating their social media efforts, but they really aren't in place yet. And as a result, there's this sort of feeling of powerlessness. Like we're, yeah, we're doing something, but we're kind of feeling our way around here and flying blind. We don't know if it's working or not, but we know we have to do something. If I can just, uh, you know, be pessimistic for a minute here. Um, You know, when it comes to public relations, having been on the agency side, having lived in that world, having served major clients, the majority of those clients did not have any real worthwhile measurement or analytics in place. When I say real or worthwhile, they stacked up the clips, they counted the circulation. That was it. You know, you could well, also that say always been the case. Yeah, I mean, you could also with, with public relations. You, well, you could say the same thing for advertising, because I mean, if you look at Nielsen numbers, you could drive a Mack truck through them. You know, they're not really that accurate. So. You know, what this says here in this, the takeaway from the study, they say, is that, uh, let me just find this here. Uh, The implications of the Harvard SAS study are quite clear. Social media, for all the buzz and excitement, is far from having arrived 
in the most important sense. You know, that what they're saying here is that, you know, because no one's measuring it, it hasn't arrived yet. Well, I'll tell you what, PR has been around for a long time and it hasn't been measured. So I, I don't necessarily think it's a logical conclusion. Sure. We remember the famous Sam Wanamaker's famous statement that half of his advertising budget was wasted, but he didn't know which half. Nobody uh, has really been able to to measure advertising with any uh, level of precision, despite Nielsen numbers and, and other attempts. Uh, we do it because we know, have, having done it for more than 100 years, we know that it works. Uh, and the problem with social media is not lack of, lack of analytics. It is the most measurable medium ever invented, after all. It is the fact that we are uncomfortable with it. We can't correlate yet our activities to some kind of success. And, and what changes that is time, which is what happened with PR, which is also very, very difficult to measure. Uh, with advertising, and it's happening with social media. I think the difference is that we're beginning to see the payoffs much faster with social media campaigns than we did, uh, I'm sure, 100 years ago with advertising. Yeah, in terms of the payoff, I mean, I think that's going to become more clear when we start seeing these integrations take place that we're going to talk about in the LinkedIn section, um, in the best practices section of this discussion. Uh, But I have to say, you know, I, I think the numbers are interesting. I think they are just flat out wrong in the assumptions they're making as a result of the data. And how, how so? How do you believe they're flat out wrong? Well, that they say they, the, you the, mean the, that the metrics? Yeah, well, yeah, they're saying um, that it hasn't arrived yet. They're saying um, also the real question is, when is it going to leave the experimental phase? Well, I mean, has, has, has marketing left the experimental phase? I mean, marketing is, <laughs> I mean, that's all you do. You sit around a table and you experiment, try to think of what you're going to do next and see what works. It's all about experimentation. I yeah, mean, A-B I think, testing uh, is, is uh, the way you go, right? I mean, so what is this idea of leaving the experimental phase? I don't get it. In fact, in fact if anything, we are entering a, a newly uh, heightened sense of experimental phase. In the, the final chapter of our book, in fact, we wrote about the seven habits of highly effective marketers that will be needed in the future. And what they all related to was a willingness to very quickly take action to uh, double down your successes, cut your losses, be willing to uh, to accept failure, be willing to accept a much higher level of risk than you have in the past because uh, protecting yourself, uh, verifying that a campaign is going to work, uh, you don't have the luxury of time anymore. By the time you've, you've gone through all of your due diligence, your competitors are way past you. You know, it, it's interesting just to play, play devil's advocate on that for a minute. Um, Jeremiah Oyang gave a talk at um, the web in Paris. He, by the way, he, he, he just killed it. I mean, he did just a great job. And, um, you know, one of the things he, he showed was a graph uh, that talked about how willing, um, you know, h- how ready technology is versus the demand for that technology. And, uh, you know, in terms of course correcting in real time before you've spent your money to see how the campaign went, uh, the idea of course correcting in real time based on data, um, you know, the tech, neither the technology is there to support that yet or, or the market demand. So as much as it sounds good and as much as I think it makes sense, um, you know, we've got a long way to go before we get there. And one of the things to, to keep in mind here, too, though, is the cost of these campaigns. The cost structure is very different. In social campaigns, for the most part, your costs are much lower. You don't have all of the, uh, the media buying. You don't have all the waste that goes into that process. You don't have uh, you know, direct mail, all the costs of, of direct mail. So you really have your risk is less because your cost is less. 
that means that you have to move faster, you have to try more things, and you have to measure like crazy because you have to know when something isn't working to cut it back and when something is working to, to put more resources into it. Well, let's um, get into our, our best practices section here. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about LinkedIn in this section, and I want to start by uh, uh, letting you know about some news that was announced uh, on January 10th, my birthday actually. Um, Hoover. Well, happy birthday, Eric. Well, thank you, you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm 45 years old, and uh, I got my first book out, so hey, I'm, I'm doing great. That's you're ahead of me. I was forty seven. Were you really? <laughs> no, I was forty. I was forty eight. I think. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, th- I owe it to you. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. So the headline here is about Hoover integrating with LinkedIn, and um, basically what what Hoover is doing is they've got an agreement with LinkedIn to uh, allow people to bring their LinkedIn data with them into Hoover's. Now, if you're not familiar with Hoover's, if you're a B two B marketer. Hoover's is the database that people consult for information about business buyers. Uh, it's very broad. Um, you know, it's, it's questionable how accurate it is. I, that's one of the problems I think LinkedIn has solved. Um, actually, in the book, we talked a lot about uh, um, how, you know, LinkedIn has sort of reinvented the recruiting model because the biggest challenge for recruiters in the past was keeping their database at up-to-date and accurate with who's where and what their contact information is. And, of course, LinkedIn, if you're a member of that, you do that yourself. So there's this sort of global uh, talent pool that's constantly keeping itself up-to-date on LinkedIn. Anyone can have access to it. I mean, the concept of bringing that into Hoover's, I think, makes a lot of sense because you could see how uh, you know that information could be updated with the LinkedIn information. Um, Hoover's is actually powered by Dun and Bradstreet, uh, and uh, you know they're obviously you, you get a you get a Dun and Bradstreet number. It helps you with a credit score, that type of thing. Um, you know what this made me think about, Paul? Uh, when I was uh, um, in Paris at at Le Web, I saw a couple of sessions by the folks at uh, Facebook, and um, one of the sessions was a partner engineer named Simon Cross talking about the Graph API. Now, the Graph API is how um, websites are able to integrate that little login with Facebook button on their destination site. So if you've seen it, you go to a website, there's a little button that says login with Facebook. Uh, you click the button, then you get a request for permission screen. It either um, says that they're going to just take your basic information or also asks for permission to other information, information about your friends, information about your extended profile information, information about your likes. Um, and then if you accept that, um, they basically solve this age-old problem that marketers have had with social media. Um, you know, one of the first questions I get when people, when I tell people, you know, hey, I had almost a million downloads last month. If I'm talking to an advertiser, the first question is, okay, who's listening? And the answer for so long had been, well, we don't really have demographic information, but we can tell you that psychographically, these are the right people because they wouldn't be listening to a niche program like this in case, unless they had a vested interest in it. And that's all fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, People want demographics. They want to know where they live. They want to know how old they are. They want to know what sex they are. Uh, they want to know what they like, where they eat, what movies they see, you know, what car they drive, all those things. And, and 
what what became clear to me in this presentation with Simon is um, you know the real power of Facebook is not Facebook.com, right? It's the demographics. It's the demographic data that is stored about us as users. And, you know, the ability for a website publisher or a marketer to cross-reference the content on their site and the landing pages on their site with that demographic storehouse of information, I think that's where it really becomes interesting. And the fact that LinkedIn's getting in the game now, too, particularly with Hoover's, makes a heck of a lot of sense to me because, you know, now um, Hoover's is going to be able to answer the question, who's looking at that data? And demographics are just the beginning, of course. Uh, what you what you see with fa- very much with Facebook, and I think to a certain extent with LinkedIn as well, is also psychographic information and also behavioral information, which is, I think, really where the you know the next great evolution of analytics is. It's not in uh, the fact is that males aged forty to forty nine are not a uh, an, an androgynous group. They don't all behave the same way. What you want to find, perhaps, are males forty to forty nine with an income of over 150k a year who ride Harley motorcycles and uh and have more than four children uh, and also you know shop at Best Buy that those are the kinds of uh, I think next generation demographics that we're going to see uh, as the social activities get mixed in with the traditional uh, descriptive information you know in terms of Facebook I mean they've got this great storehouse of information that paints a picture of who the visitors are to the website and who I'm engaging, what their likes are, what their preferences are, who they're connected to, all those things. But you know, there really isn't a strong incentive to give Facebook your credit card information. Um, you know, Google has Google Checkout. So if you're a Google user and you use Google Checkout, they have access to your credit card information. And they can then cross-reference you know, your spending data with the places that you visit. But, I mean, it seems like that's sort of a, um, uh, that's sort of a blind spot for Facebook, at least at this point. Uh, and then for LinkedIn as well, I mean, in terms of spending information, how much money they have, I mean, how would they tackle that? Yeah, but I don't think LinkedIn or Facebook really want your credit card. Uh, they want your uh, they want your data, and there's a lot more money for them in selling cuts of that data than there is in generating transactions, which actually are a fairly low low margin business, at least as far as goods are concerned. LinkedIn, I understand, has built a fairly successful subscription business where they actually are taking credit cards, but what they're providing there is a service and not a uh, not a physical product. You know, our buddy Chuck Hester, who's you know the LinkedIn guy. Um, I, I've heard him do a, a, a training presentation on LinkedIn, and he actually says you don't need a premium account. He doesn't even have a premium account. Uh, he doesn't well, think I think it's premium worth it. accounts are good if if you're doing a lot of sales prospecting, and this is where B two B angle I think is is important. LinkedIn is very good for sales prospecting. Uh, the, the the premium accounts, if you really want to tune into, you know, if you want to reach people directly, I think that's one of the most powerful benefits of LinkedIn's premium account is I can reach people. Whom I'm not connected to, and there are salespeople the who pay for the that. Service. Yeah, yeah. There are people who say pay for that. Uh, I had a story on LinkedIn that I just uh, brought up, and I'll uh, we'll post the show notes, uh, post the uh, link in the show notes. But it was a, a piece written by uh, Stephanie Sammons on the Social Media Examiner: Five Ways to Use LinkedIn Groups to Build Influential Connections. And uh, I'm on a bit of a LinkedIn. B 
binge right now because I've, for one client I've been using a lot of uh, doing a lot of LinkedIn group work and just the more I use LinkedIn the more impressed with how really solid it is. Uh, it is not a, a a mass market type of site. They seem to know who they are. Uh, they don't have a ton of applications, but the apps that they have are very good. And the groups on LinkedIn um, are, generally have very good discussions. It's a good place to find business professionals who want to discuss serious business topics. And the, the more I use LinkedIn, the more impressed I am with it as a B2B uh, destination. Now, when we were researching the book, one interesting thing that we came across was some research done by B2B Magazine last year that found that LinkedIn is more popular with B2B marketers than Facebook uh, by orders of 70% to 30%. And I think if you spend some time on LinkedIn, you'll see why B2B marketers really need to become familiar with LinkedIn. It is all about uh, business people discussing serious professional issues. It's not fun like Facebook is, but they don't want to be fun. They want to be useful, and uh, I just continue to be impressed with how they have held out uh, against, I'm sure, the urge to become more of a lifestyle service and have stuck strictly to their professional roots, and they're, they're, it's paying off for them. What do you think of this um, uh, Zing? Uh, of Zing? Yeah. Zing, uh, you know, this other B2B social bit. network. Um, you know, it's, it's actually pretty big in Germany. Um, I just got through doing some consulting over there and wound up uh, getting involved with Zing through uh, one of my contacts over there. And boy, they seem to really prefer that to LinkedIn in the European market. I'm not really sure why that is. It doesn't have nearly the functionality that uh, LinkedIn Groups has. You know, they recently actually did a whole revamp of LinkedIn Groups. You know, it used to well, be. Well, they opened them up. Yeah, which was a which was a very smart move, I thought. And I was uh, I'm the administrator of a LinkedIn group, and they uh, and the way they handled that, I thought was thoughtful and intelligent. They gave you the option. Uh, they said we we're giving you the option to open up your group, which is basically to make it accessible to search engines, to make it tweetable, to make it linkable, all the things that groups were not before. Uh, it's your option whether to do it. If you do it then all of the conversations up to the point that you decide to open the group will be archived, continue to be a closed archive, so there's no violation of your, uh, of your privacy. And, uh, you know, and it's your choice. And uh, I can see no reason not to do it. Uh, one of my frustrations with LinkedIn groups in the past has been that you can't tweet them because so many groups you have to be a member of. But now you have the option of making your group open and search discoverable. So, again, the way they handled that I thought was very mature, for lack of a better word, as compared to some of the ways that Facebook handles its changes in, uh, in its practices, which it tends to lumber, sort of lurch from, from change to change. I thought LinkedIn uh, put, put a lot of thought into making this a, um, a seamless and a professional uh, option. Yeah, I, th- I thought they did a good job too. I I, can't, I must say, Paul, and maybe this is just the groups that I'm a member of. I've kind of noticed over maybe I would say the last couple of months, the quality of the posts to a lot of the uh, LinkedIn groups I'm a member of, sort of becoming less useful and more blatantly sales oriented. Well, one of the things that this article, a uh, very good article by Stephanie Sammons, recommends is 
you know, identify your groups carefully because some topics you'll find that there are literally hundreds of groups. And, uh, and if you go into the groups, you'll see that it's mostly spam messages. It's, they may be open groups or they have very loose membership options. And so there's a lot of people in there posting junk. And, uh, you know, those are not the groups you want to waste your time on. The private groups, one of the things that, that LinkedIn does very well, I think, is administer private groups or uh, not, they're not technically private, but uh, groups that require a uh, uh, permission to become a part of. And those groups, I find, are generally much higher level of quality, and they demand more of their members. So if you go in there and start posting spam, uh, spam messages or posting ramp, uh, blatant promotions for your business, you know, they'll boot you out. Uh, and that's, those, I think, are the kinds of groups you want to look for. How are, tell, tell us, how are you using groups for your clients? Uh, well, this particular client is, a, uh, uh, is looking to, to uh, reach the mid-market, and uh, they have a group of mid-market professionals, almost 2,000 members in the group right now. And they use it to, uh, to start discussions that relate back to topics that are on their website. Uh, and so the people who post topics on their website are encouraged to start discussions on LinkedIn that point back to the original post on the website, but also continue a discussion there. And like most LinkedIn discussions, most of them don't go very far, but you will hit some that really take off. And it's not, not unusual to see 25, 30 posts or more. And some people get, people get quite passionate about these topics. But I think one of the things you, you see in LinkedIn groups, uh, this is something we pointed out in the book, uh, uh, Eric, is that the the comments are professional. You don't get trash talking. You don't get a lot of uh, of juvenile humor. Uh, very, you know, you get very serious, thoughtful discussions going there. But yeah, you, ha- yeah, you really have to stick to the stick to the groups that are established that have membership guidelines. And what Groucho Marx said, I wouldn't be part of a uh, belong to a club that would have me as a member. I mean, look at the groups, uh, take a look at the groups you might become a member of and say, is this a place I'd want to be? Is there thoughtful discussion going on here? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing um, I like so much about LinkedIn is the lack of anonymity. People don't mess around with the professional profile. You know, that's how they eat. So they're not going to say something stupid. They're a lot less likely to say something stupid there. And I think uh, you, you have a, a much higher degree of certainty that you're um, – talking to who you say who they say you're talking to whereas you know with facebook one, you have a lot more spoofed accounts there's one uh, story we mentioned in the book of a software company a construction management software company that requires its salespeople to become members of the local construction groups in whatever geography they're in and uh, the local linkedin groups and to be uh, you know, contributors and uh, valued members of these communities and they find that this is a great way to generate leads because they're you know they're posting useful information and they're getting inquiries back from uh, uh, from members of the group and and that becomes a sales lead. But but just to sort of back it up and and pr- provide a, a more a comprehensive view of it all, you know, in the book we have that section about uh, the SAP Community Network, and uh, Mark Yolton um, gave us such great information you know about what they're doing to empower unpaid peer-to-peer armies to make a market for their products. And um, one of the things I asked him was, uh, you know, how do you decide whether or not to do a private, branded social network that's just your own or how do you, or going to LinkedIn and, and building a group? Like, what are the criteria that you make 
a smart strategic decision of where to go. And for that, he said, you know, it's about the size of the addressable market. If the addressable market isn't big enough to sustain the momentum, uh, you're probably better off going to LinkedIn where there is a larger addresser market. You know, if you're a small company, maybe you don't have your own group. Maybe you go through some sort of an industry consortium or a trade group or a trade magazine or a membership society, that type of thing, and get a group going that way. Uh, I think the number, uh, if I remember right, and it's in the book, um, is uh, is two million. I think that's uh, what what Mark said. You know, you want to have if you're going to do your own network. Well, I don't think you need two million. Uh, his uh, SAP is fortunate to have two million. Uh, we uh, mentioned at one point. I think it was a um, a social network for construction, construction industry, plumbers, electricians, and such. That uh, we we uh, had the case study in the book, and they have on the order of fifty thousand members. But for that uh, that market, that's actually a very appropriate number. I think you what you want to look at is the size of the potential. Uh, customer base, potential member base relative to the size of the market. And uh, he's absolutely right. Mark is absolutely right. You you have, uh, if it's a small market, if there's a small number of potential members, then you probably should go to LinkedIn because, well, the audience is already there. And the, the, the most frustrating part of creating a customer community is getting people to participate, getting them, them to talk. Uh, on LinkedIn, it's easier because you can more easily find people to be members. Uh, but certainly, if your market is is in the order of if your potential membership base is in the you know, tens of thousands, I think a, uh, a a custom community, a private community, is is a, a very viable possibility. In terms of um, you know you're using uh, LinkedIn groups for your clients, uh, do they you know do they wind up following the top influencer of the week? I mean, how do they grow their groups? Uh, well, the groups grow; uh, they grow via word of mouth. It's remarkable. In fact, this one this one uh, client I, I'm working on LinkedIn added 75 members to the group last week. I don't even know how they did it. Uh, I was looking at some of the. Uh, we posted some links in there as uh, as Bitly links, and they got 350 clicks on the, on the Bitly links on seven Bitly links. I mean, that w- those were good numbers. Those were actually phenomenal numbers considering the size of the. Uh, of the market that they're addressing, um, I think it grows through word of mouth and people just sharing links with each other and telling other people about about joining a group. It's it's not same way it works on Facebook, but it's not like um, you know it, it's it's different though because in a business to business context, it's about getting something. It's about you know it, it potentially being profitable. Uh, there being some sort of an ROI. So I mean, is it about you know posting? RFPs is about posting uh, RFIs. I mean, w- what type of information do you think gets the most engagement in a B two B context? <laughs> Jobs. <laughs> I mean, uh, when you get down Hiring. right down to it, what people use LinkedIn for it's it's a big job search. But uh, but beyond that, uh, I think it is useful for um, uh, you know the most active groups will tend to be around professional development. Um, getting questions answered, the answers section on LinkedIn rocks. It's absolutely great. I mean, you know, Quora is all the rage right now, but LinkedIn was Quora five years ago. Uh, they were getting – it was a great place to post a question and get answers to your question. And, uh, for the most part, they are professional issues. Um, and that's – you know, I'd say getting a question answered by quickly, quickly by people who have expertise uh, is the core – 
is a core feature of LinkedIn. But ultimately, LinkedIn is, uh, you know, most people use it to, to hang out and look for career opportunities, business opportunities. And uh, if you want more information on LinkedIn, we cover lead generation, platform selection, platforms in use, and profiting from, profiting from online communities on LinkedIn, all in the book. Um, some good information on that in there. Uh, anything else you want to add to this before we wrap it up? No, thanks for all the all the time on LinkedIn. It's a it's a topic that I uh, I care a lot about, and um, uh, that's the, so that's it for the uh, best practices section. Great. So again, this has been our first episode of this B two B social media podcast uh, to celebrate the release of our book, Social Marketing to the Business Customer, the first book on B two B social media, and uh, you can get it at B two B social media uh, thanks for joining us on uh, January 17th, 2011, uh, for this episode of our B2B social media podcast. This has been Eric Schwartzman, and this is Paul Gillen in Boston. Great. And we until next week, we'll see you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.